Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, Black Cat Weather by David R. Bunch. This is first published in Fantastic Stories of Imagination, February 1963, where I found it, uh, along with a Ursula K. Le Guin story, which I was very excited about because it was the, I think it's the second one I found of hers that was public domain. Uh, but then I said, oh, what's this little story? And I saw the title and I saw the picture and I said, I'm going to read this. I did. And I'm like, I think I'm having a stroke. I I think I've suddenly got schizophrenia because I found it incredibly hard to understand what's going on. Uh, And then I read it again and I spent a little more time with it and I found it to be incredibly easy to understand what's going on and seeing that there's a style going on. But then I read it a third time, and I'm like, wow, I see how he did this. And uh, I'd never heard of this guy, David R. Bunch. I didn't know much about this story other than it was a part of some series I'd never read called the Motorin series, or Modern series, um, that was collected into a book called Motorin or Modern. And I think you had heard of that or had read that at some point, right? I own it. Okay. Um, I... I I don't know how a guy named David R. Bunch didn't hit my radar until 2019 or 2020, given that uh, I think he's got some talent, and I think he's done something pretty interesting here. Um, How come he's not better known? I I feel like this guy is in the same category as I would put uh, Cordwainer Smith for uh, stories like Scanners Live in Vain. And uh, Alfred Bester uh, for a number of a number of his short stories and also his two famous novels. Um, it, it's it's jarring and strange, and also it's got this whole Edgar Allan Poe thing going on. That I mean, it's not specifically Poe, but it's sure Poe. So <laughs> it's got a whole lot going on in a tiny what five page story. Wow. Yeah, I I agree. I think it's worth noting that uh, there's such a thing as a literary marketplace mm-hmm. um, that there are, for example, William Faulkner, um, a, a Nobel laureate, um, his work, which is also stylistically unusual, his work was so... Um, unappreciated that although some of his great work like uh, the sound of the fury uh, came out in the twenties, he, he wasn't in print. I mean, he just went out of print. And when, um, when he came out with a book in the 1940s, it said on it by the author of light in August. Uh, why? Because, that was a book that was famous for having had a uh, bizarre sex scene in it. Hmm. Uh, and it came out as, as a double volume. Uh, so 
his literary stock has gone up considerably since then. But, you know, we have these things. Herman Melville had trouble getting work published. Um, and Moby Dick was not thought of as a great American novel mm -hmm. until years later. Mm -hmm. and, but now it is. Um, I think that David Bunch maybe has suffered in the marketplace more than he has suffered as a writer. I think he has a great deal of skill. I think one of the reasons that he perhaps hasn't captured people as much as they should, as, as his work should, is that, as you say, you can read it once and it seems like one kind of story. You can read it again. It seems like another kind of story. Um, in a way, every story is a, is a Rorschach test. Mm -hmm. When when we say, you know, I interpret it a certain way, <laughs> when when a student says to a teacher, well, that's just your interpretation. I could It could be anything. The student is right to begin with, but wrong at the end. Yes, you can interpret it. That's just my interpretation. But the thing is, well, there may be a dozen good interpretations of a work of art, there's an infinite number of bad interpretations. <laughs> yes, yes. And I think what's going on with this particular story, Black Cat Weather, is that if, as a Rorschach test, you read it one way, it, it sort of feels like one kind of thing with one kind of meaning and one kind of theme. And you take the ending in a certain way. And then if you read it in a different way, it changes. So what I'm suggesting, Jesse, is that it may well be all three of the readings that you report to us are, in fact, just your interpretation. But none of them is, in fact, wrong. And that's a little disconcerting to think that, hmm, I've just read this story and I'm not sure what it is because, mm -hmm. come to think of it, it might be something else. I think writing that way reveals a richness in the story that perhaps didn't capture people's attention because they were more concerned with genre work. It appears, after all, in a genre magazine. It's supposed to be easy to get and know how to pigeonhole, but I think it's not. Yeah, and I also, I, I, I was like, what, what, what is this? Where is this? What, what is happening? Like, just the word choices. So the f very first time I read it, I was struggling to understand and follow the story. And I don't think that that's an accident. I think that that's deliberate. Um, he's placing us in a place that is so different from our world um, that you can't you can't just do it the normal you know descriptive like a, a lot of really good writing like done by people like Donald Westlake or um, I just uh, we just read Jack uh, Jack Finney novel you know super smooth beautiful to read wonderful insights into human whatever uh but this is this is challenging because it's not our world it's not some world we understand it's a different place now uh, one of the very first things i did after i started reading it i was like okay um this is amazing <laughs> I, I went and searched them up, and I, I found out what modern is, and I, I just want to read the little paragraph from the Wikipedia entry on David R. Bunch, uh, talking about the motor and sequence, and uh, it, I think, will help set the stage 
for uh, understanding the story. But maybe before I do that, you would read it to us and create that same shocking Mm -hmm. experience in the mind of the listener. Uh, Well, I don't know if I'll be able to shock anybody, but I'll certainly read the story. Let me say, though, that already in the very first two paragraphs of the story, so much is implicit. Mm-hmm. And you might not notice that on a first reading, so I'm telling you now that I hope that you'll listen for it. And there is at the end of that first two um, paragraphs an ellipsis. When I stop for that ellipsis, you'll know I've gotten that far. But I'll keep on going. It's a short story, as you say. Black Cat Weather. It was in black cat weather and jack-o'-lantern times that she stood beneath my window, hallooing, holding five long, slim boxes stacked in her scabbing arms. A vague iron shadow over by the fence was holding some object that a little resembled a boat. Daddy, she yelled, come see what we have brought to you. And there's lots more over in good long rest. And think how many more all over and all the others. And think how many more. Come see. Of course, I knew that her five boxes contained nothing really, at least not anything you could, well, not anything. And of course, Iron Mox was carrying one of the things out of good long rest, entirely forbidden. I arose from my hip-patty chair, the good den lounger, the gentle undulator where I sit mostly now, one-childed and wifeless, the calm waiter, and think on universal deep questions, problems of the world. I chewed at my throat with the fixer, probing and prying, trying to ease some at the place that was worked all in gold against cancer. And I said in my pre-planned speech, working hard with my mouth, following along with the tapes, Daphilene, you are not to take the iron mocks with you anymore to good long rest, because he gets the things. Even though I set him on dumb servant alternate set, he still somehow changes to human set and goes for the things. I don't care if you want to take those long stocking boxes down there alone day in and day out, 365 days a year for the 25 next years and bring back, well, bring back whatever it is you say you find down there. But no more of this stuff of mocks and the big, dirty, damp things. Understand? And mocks. Mox came lumbering in on his blunt, boat-shaped feet, holding a big box lightly out to me as though it contained something I wanted. When I did not take it at once, he dropped it at my feet and shook his arms high up into himself until his iron hands were hanging like calm leaves from his shoulder beams, a strange shrug. Then he flapped his hands and flashed his light bulb eyes on and off in his usual greeting manner. Skip the fawn stuff, I snapped. Flick off your human switch, Mox, and go on dumb servant alternate set switch. Now, he complied. Pick up that dirty thing you dropped almost on my feet. He did that. Back to good long rest, I ordered. And fix, fix, so no one knows you've disturbed. 
They disappeared into the cream black night and my throat being tired from the shouting and without tape fixed now to yell Daphne to come back. They both walked away, an iron thought tape thinker and a little girl wading into the shadowless, thick, dark, under a moonless low sky and clouds on the edge of late October rain. She was Daphne, my daughter Daphne, in the monster times, in the times when strange machines and strange mutants roamed the homeless plastic, juggling their switches and angers. In an age past the age for virtue, or even a try. I let her run with the iron tape-fed thinker as the lesser of many evils in her springtime, gathering what experiences she would against, in our times, the dark tendency toward hopelessness, wide and thick and tall as the rubbery wet sky above us. I tried to teach her nothing. In due time, she would grow to replacements, and part by part her flesh would go for metal and plastic in the new great surgery, and what remained would be fed with the introven. But now let her, motherless, go with her stocking boxes into the deep night following the thought tape thinker and let her cope with her loneliness and her grow-up problems as best she might until, finally, hard and firm and unshockably replaced she'd be a woman to survive good long rest was a cemetery when she came back perhaps i would leave my hip patty chair long enough to go to her perhaps faking i would take one of her stocking boxes and look inside pretending interest and perhaps there would be for once lightning bugs fluttering and flashing in the long hollow dark of the stocking box and then i could say with my fatherly tape against the gold block for the cancer why daffeline how nice you have been out catching the bug lights in the great night of this cemetery world like a normal little child player should just as i told you to do against the long dark a little spark how nice and you have brought them in boxes, burning and chafing your scabbing little arms, all up to me, your daddy. How nice, 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 nice. I find it best to have my speech preset these days, the tape, tape planned, so all will go smoothly around the gold block for the cancer. Sometimes caught off balance, the tape wrong or not ready and circumstances changed. My words go past the situation in a kind of silly commentary and weird beyond all imagining because circumstances for which one cannot always pre-plan can change speech need. Circumstances should not do that to me, I feel, but they do. And whereas overall I should be cautiously saying less and less these days, I find myself loudly saying more and more all the time, making my plans in hopes and letting the comments flow up the gold flue in a challenge at black conditions. Please, really. Against the noise of iron feet in the night and the soft chuff, chuff of a little girl's shoes moving, I let my monster throat start its trial run. My words beat like flailing clods in the gold stovepipe where should have been supple workings of thought sound. Hello, it shouted at the dark, 
and then there were lumps in view. He was a tall, square hump over by the plastic pear tree. She was a much smaller and slenderer blob in the dark, a little apart from him, toward me. I sprang toward her, my mouth going hard at the words I had planned. Why, Daphne, how nice, nice, nice you have been. She thrust a stocking box up to me, and for one ice-struck, ice-stark moment, her eyes fathomed into mine under the rays of the BMO light that was just then circling past my rooftop. The BMOs were cutting across our yard from the other rooftops, too, crisscrossing the tops of him and her in alternating shakes of light and thick dark. I saw he was fluttering his hinge arms up and down in his shoulder holes. She was straining quietly as a stone. The stocking box in my hand was heavy. Nothing fluttered in it. No lights pulsed in its house darkness. I waited for the next sweep of my BMO, holding the box where I thought the ray would pass. It swept across something white and cold and dead of eye in the box. Daphne waited, upthrust there like a pedestal, with her scabbed hands wrapped twisted. Mox was hinging and unhinging the full length of his arms still, and my throat strangely felt an old ache that was not all from the gold part of my speech trough. I let the BMO pass again across the white thing in the box, and amid an ice mist falling along all of my flesh strips quivering, I suddenly realized. At the third sweep, I held it out until I could see the jag places where Mox had sundered it from its spot, where it had for five years rested upon a gravestone, flower and angel burdened in good long rest. At the fourth sweep, I threw it hard as I could at the iron sheet I stood on. The whizzing bemos from the many rooftops caught flashes of shattering white, and my throat ached so from an old ache that I could not finish my pre-planned conversation, and a white eye smote me with a smooth, chalky stare of cold, cold, then the iron mocks suddenly quitting that silly business of hinging and unhinging his arms, bent squarely through the big hinges in his waist loop only, and lifted a thing from the ground. It's her, Daphne shrieked with a cry of celebration. You had his switch on servant, so I just ordered him to do it. He's found mother. As I collapsed quietly across the white dust of an angel, the iron mocks and the frightened little girl again slipped cemetery ward into the gummy dark, guessing they had not pleased me. Wow, wow, wow. I, <laughs> uh, I'm, I marvel at the fact that I didn't understand it as I started to read it. And then when I finished it the first time, I was like, I was like, okay, I think I know what's happening. And now it's like so obvious. It's like uh, super, <laughs> duper obvious to me exactly why everything goes the way it does. Um, but as you say, I could be uh, interpreting it incorrectly. I do want to read this paragraph, though, because I think it uh, from the Wikipedia entry on uh, David R. Bunch and the motor and sequence, because I think it, it gives a little insight into what these other stories would be like later on they're collected as uh in a book called Modern or Modern Modern 
Um, but they were written separately over many years, over many different magazines, and uh, I don't think anybody necessarily knew, other than the author, that they're supposed to be connected. But I will uh, read this beautiful paragraph here. The Motor in Sequence. Throughout his career, Bunch worked on a group of satirical, far-future SF stories set in Motorin, a, ver- a version of Earth paved over entirely with gray plastic and controlled by perpetually warring cyborg fortresses. Although the society of Motorin seems to project an appearance of personal valor and military perfection, its citizens are ultimately powerless, dominated by their own petty insecurities and hubris. Uh, I don't think we see very much of that in here, but there's a few hints. One is he calls the landscape plastic, which makes sense. He's also got these amazing descriptions for this reality that they live in. You know, the it's the, what was the last one? The gummy, gummy night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The gummy dark. Um, uh, the, uh, the the description of the thing in his throat that is his replacement voice box and speech synthesizer tape player is he calls it the gold flu uh he calls it a voice trough yeah a voice trough a gold stovepipe right um and it's there against the cancer uh uh, but there's this intern right in the middle of the story there's this um uh, starting on page 101 going to 102 is basically the one big paragraph that I think it's just it's just a beauty and I in thinking of the title which doesn't really make a lot of sense in terms of you know there's no cats in this story exactly um, but black cats uh, make me think of Edgar Allan Poe and the obsession with death <laughs> Which is very much present in this story. Um, the narrator's death, uh, which may be far away, but is seemingly coming in pieces. And the daughter's death, which will, again, probably be coming in pieces. The word choices are amazing. I thought of uh, the black cat, obviously. The oblong box, that's another great Poe story. Um I, I don't know that Bunch was thinking it, but when he calls the feet boats, that's what I was thinking. Um, uh, the robot's feet boats. There's the uh, Ambrose Beer story, Moxon's Master, which we've covered on this podcast. Um, we've got this name of the robot. I guess it's a robot. It might be their mother. I'm not sure. Uh, he, he calls it Iron Mox. And, of course, Iron uh, is, you know, metal, but Mox is spelled M-O-X, like in Moxon's Master. But it also sounds like the word M-O-C-K-S. And uh, as people are having their body parts replaced with bits of metal, um, I- I'm fascinated by this, the robot. Of the three characters in here, I think it's the most interesting because of what I'm it sorry, does. I think I think you, I just want to make explicit where mm-hmm. your thought was going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As people are replaced, iron mocks them. Yes, yes. Um, and, of course, I also uh, I thought of this as sort of an inversion of Annabelle Lee, um, where the, the marriage produced a child um, before the death or semi-death of Annabelle Lee. 
Um, I don't know exactly the backstory for this, but just as a gem of itself, it's amazing. I want to read this internal paragraph. You read it already. It's just so fascinating because it gives... It's basically an info dump to give us information about what's going on in the story previously and to come. But it also has the effect of being basically a poem, or at least prose poem, with its beauty of horror. It's a, it's a cyborg horror dystopia uh, that's horrible, and yet it's quite beautiful the way Bunch writes it. I'm going to read it. They disappeared into the black cream night, and my throat being tired from the shouting and without tape fixed now to yell daffoline to come back, they both walked away, an iron thought tape thinker and a little girl waiting in the shadowless thick dark under a moonless low sky and clouds on the edge of late October rain. She was daffoline, my daughter daffoline in the monster times. In the times when strange machines and strange mutants roamed the homeless plastic, juggling their switches and angers, in an age past the age of age for virtue or even a try, I let her run with the iron tape-fed thinker as the lesser of many evils in her springtime, gathering what experiences she would against in our times the dark tendency towards hopelessness wide and thick and tall as the rubbery wet sky above us. I tried to teach her nothing. In due time, she would grow to quote-unquote replacements and part by her and part by part, her flesh would go for metal and plastic in the new great surgery and what remained would be fed with introven. But now let her motherless go with her stocking boxes into the deep night following the thought tape thinker and let her cope with her loneliness and her grown-up problems as best she might until finally, hard and firm and unshockably replaced, she'd be a woman to survive. That's just an amazing paragraph. It's powerful. It really is. It, and it tells us what is actually... Uh, it, it, this is, I think, the key to understanding what's going on in the story. The What he calls uh, good long rest. Uh, that's a graveyard. He eventually says that. Um, but the way you get buried in this graveyard is not as a piece. It's as in pieces. As they take away your parts. Uh, this daughter, Daphne, has scabby arms. None of it, none of her body seems to be replaced yet. But the father seems to be on his way there. And I somehow think that the, this iron tape-fed thinker has had its brain replaced and once was a person. There's no evidence for that, especially given that it's, it's, the, um, it's a male... It's just designated a male, but I can't disprove that feeling that is so strong in me that it was once a person and perhaps once the mother. I think one of the uh, the things that makes this story funded, as John Dewey said, that is you can return to it and find more and more in it, is that there are some questions that cannot be answered and they are at least implicitly posed. 
it is clear that the father is speaking about the process of replacement. And it's clear when he says at the end of the paragraph you just read for us that a much replaced Daphne will be a woman who can (laughs) survive, that the replacement of fleshly humans uh, to turn them into cyborgs is something that has been done by humans for their own survival. Mm -hmm. What's not clear is whether whether Mox was created first as a machine and keeps coming over toward being human, regardless of how you set his switches, Mm -hmm. or if, in fact, he started as a human. I think what is perhaps most important about not being able to make this decision, which way to interpret it, is that ultimately it doesn't matter. That is, it doesn't matter whether we become machines or machines become like us. The ethical quality of living in the world is still crucial. And being able to retain a relationship between oneself and one's child, to be able to project oneself into the future, that still is a hope, a hope that we get from this glorious language the narrator gives us, but a hope that is, in fact, now beyond us because we have created so many machines. We have paved the world with plastic. And we're told that this good long rest is one of many such places in the cemetery world. Mm -hmm. One of the things I like so much about this is the way in which the story asks us not only to see that it doesn't matter which way we interpret it. What's important is that it is an undecidable question. It's also undecidable what genre this fits into. Mm -hmm. I think. I think it's clear that Iron Mox refers to Bierce's Moxon's Master. In Moxon's Master, which, as you say, we've discussed in this podcast, Moxon creates a robot chess player. And the robot chess player escapes his control. It becomes human despite what he wants. And it kills him. Mm-hmm. Here, Iron Mox isn't killing anybody in an obvious way. But what he is doing is throwing in the face of the human child, a human who has not yet succumbed to whatever are the biological uh, assaults of this most industrial world, throwing into her face the fact of the death of her kind. So just as Moxon's monster in Moxon's Mm. master kills Moxon, here, Iron Mox mocks us by killing her by bits, slow replacement. The angel, which must have been a statue on top of the grave, is what she brings back. This is my mother, because she can't, after all, get the mother. I don't know. The, I, I think that might be her skull. Well, I, we're told that it's it's angelic. Maybe the mm-hmm. father at this point wants to think of her skull as angelic, but it says it's above the gravestone. It's true. So it, maybe it was her skull that was set there. I think just as we can't say whether this is post-apocalyptic or just it or just a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a little bit like a perverse Wizard of Oz with her helpers here. Um, it, it clearly calls to mind, as you say, Poe, but it calls to mind other things as well. The black cat, whether Poe uses the black cat in his 
famous story, the black cat, rather than some other kind of cat, because black cats go all the way back as familiars for witches, Mm -hmm. as as signs of evil. And jack-o'-lantern, which in modern North America is just that cute little thing that you have at Halloween. Now, jack-o'-lantern is itself a medieval myth about someone who is condemned mm-hmm. never to be able to get to heaven and not never able to go to hell. Jack-o'-lantern is someone who is condemned to make limbo of earth and live without any satisfaction or sense of finality. Mm-hmm. It was in black cat weather and jack-o'-lantern times that she stood between my beneath my window. This is a story that is telling us that the myths of the past point us to what will be the terrible paved over future of our world. And it will pave over every gasp of our humanity. Even to be able to speak, we will have to go through a metallic trough and overcome cancer. We have created a world we cannot ultimately inhabit except as monsters. Mm -hmm. I think that this story really does show us the world of Motoran. Um, But to know that, you'd have to read the whole book. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there would be always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember... You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.